Welcome to this Forthright Radio for January 12th, 2024. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guests today on Forthright Radio are two journalists from the nonprofit online news organization The Intercept, John Schwartz and Elise Swain. We watched in horror on October 7th, 2023, as Hamas gunmen launched surprise attacks on Israeli military and civilian targets along the Gaza border during the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah. It came 50 years and a day after Egyptian and Syrian forces launched an assault during Yom Kippur to retrieve territory Israel had taken during the conflict in 1967. The New York Times reports that there were about 1,200 deaths, including 766 Israeli civilians, 36 of them children, and 373 members of the security forces, plus approximately 250 Israeli civilians and soldiers taken hostage, including 30 children. The attack is considered the bloodiest day in Israel's modern history and the deadliest for Jews since the Holocaust. In response, the Israeli defense forces launched and sustained brutal retaliatory bombings and near total restrictions on water, food, fuel, and other necessities for life, vowing to continue till Hamas has been destroyed. As of January 11, 2024, more than 23,000 Palestinians have been killed, the overwhelming majority of them women and children. Unknown numbers of others remain buried beneath the rubble of the obliterated homes, hospitals, mosques, schools, churches, and other crucial infrastructure. International efforts for a ceasefire have been thwarted by the U.S. government in the United Nations, even as President Biden has gone around Congress to send more U.S. weapons to Israel. Meanwhile, South Africa has brought a case to the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. In the United States and around the world, huge demonstrations continue to occur to support an immediate and sustained ceasefire. These things and much more leave me uncharacteristically unable to process the emotions that arise, the horror, the knowledge that through my government, without whom this could not and would not continue, I am complicit. So the piece that Elise Swain and John Schwartz published on The Intercept on Christmas Eve, Merry Christmas, We All Belong in the Hague, spoke to me and moved me to invite them to forthright radio. Elise Swain is photo editor of The Intercept, intercept. John Schwartz worked for Michael Moore's Doggy Dog Films and was a research producer for Moore's Capitalism, A Love Story. He's contributed to many publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, Mother Jones, and Slate. And I am grateful to David Rovix for his permission to include his music in this broadcast. We begin with David's song, Famine and Disease. places they report it. If you listen to the news, you'll hear the press conferences and the words they choose to describe the facts on the ground. In the Gaza Strip, you can hear the measured freezes, see the trembling lips. Uttering words so rarely spoken, eyes open wide as one official after the other speaks of genocide. From the head of each department, you can hear the powerless please. The next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease. As the fighter jets rain missiles down from way up in the sky, as the tower blocks collapse with each mission that they fly, as the hospitals are targeted along with everything, as the cameras show us the apocalypse they bring. With no buildings, with no homes, when no structure remains Once it's all been leveled by the ships and tanks and planes Every medical practitioner around the earth agrees The next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease As the Congress writes a blank check to facilitate the slaughter Biden says he told them to let in the food and water But they're not and nothing happens But more destruction everywhere White phosphorus burning any skin exposed to air Actions making clear That annihilation is the Israeli regime's plan for the Palestinian nation If you survive the bombings, you don't burn or freeze The next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease 
from Yemen to Algeria, militias on the move, from Lebanon to Syria, while on the Gaza Strip, if they have a working phone, they're trying to tell us all, don't just leave us here alone. Don't look away, as this happens again, while this world still has Palestinians, because for all these refugees, descended from other refugees, the next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease. Welcome to Forthright Radio, John Schwartz and Elise Swain. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having us uh, on to talk about this stuff, which is super duper important. Well, over the past few years, you two have co-written a piece around Christmas time. And this year's piece was headlined, Merry Christmas, We All Belong in Prison at the Hague. It really moved me because it addressed my own feelings of impotent, passive complicity with, in particular, the slaughter of innocents by Israel in Gaza with the continuing military aid of my own country's government. Hence, my contacting you two to discuss the issues you raised. Elise, let's begin with you. Before we get into the specifics raised in this year's piece, would you share with our listeners how you and John came to create this tradition? I was able to follow it back to 2019 with your piece, Merry Christmas, America, Let's Remember the Children Who Live in Fear of Our Killer Drones. And in 2022, the headline was, Merry Christmas, We're All Being Murdered by Capitalism. So take it, Elise. (laughs) I was very inspired by my own family, my brother, saying to me, I find the news depressing and I try to avoid it. I just don't read the news. Instead of making me angry, it really inspired me to try to devastate my family every single year around the time that we were all supposed to be together and spending time together and do it with the spirit of we're technically a Christian nation. You know, it's around Christmas. Why don't we take a look at some of the more heinous atrocities that the United States continues to perpetuate at home and around the world? And Christmas is a great time to get away with publishing something ridiculous at a a respectable news site because everyone is on vacation. And that was really where it was born. And I think it's hard to get people to care about the things that I care about, which are obsessing about drone strikes, the after effects of the war on terror, things that we really, really deeply want to forget about and pretend that they never happened. I am dedicated to not allowing that. I talk about it as much as possible. And I think there are different ways that you can get people to care about things that are awful. And one of one of them is sort of humor as a tactic. And you have to laugh about these things too. It's it's just the only way to really process the, the pain that it that it brings to know that you were involved and complicit as an American with the government who doesn't listen to what we want. Well, let's get into the meat. You have both informed me that you consider this exercise in ridiculousness and even humorous, but I actually have taken it quite to heart, and I don't want our listeners to get the impression that you haven't done deep research, because you have. And in your articles, you include links to your assertions, which I very much appreciate. Let's get into this year's. Uh, John, why don't you start? Someone once said Americans suffer from irony deficiency syndrome, and I, I think that that's only gotten worse over the years. But when Christmas was canceled in Bethlehem, that one topped things off. John, share with our listeners much of what you wrote in this year's We All Belong in Prison at The Hague. The strange thing about living at the center of the biggest empire that has ever existed in human history is that you are naturally complicit in crimes all over the world. Like, it's just inevitable. And we wanted to make sure that at Christmas people did not forget about this. And it's very difficult to find words to talk about what's going on in Gaza right now because – I have never witnessed anything like this in my life. And we know that the United States has done horrible things all over the world for decades, if not centuries. But there is something, I think, unusual about this in the sense that people in Gaza are close to the poorest and 
least powerful human beings on Earth, and they confront the most powerful people on Earth, you know, the United States together with Israel. And it is extremely sobering to see the degree to which the powerful people will just massacre the powerless with impunity. And as I say, I, I haven't witnessed anything like this. Even even the invasion of Iraq was not quite the same. And so we wanted to express the fact that like all Americans bear some responsibility for this. Like I tried to calculate how much money I personally am contributing to the killing of Palestinians in 2023. And I came up with the number of like $150. Uh, everybody else can calculate that for themselves if they want. And the difficult thing about this is that, that we are both complicit and feel largely powerless. And so we wanted to address both of those things and try to think about first understanding the complicity and then trying to think about like what, if anything, can any of us do? I can hear somebody in our audience going, but what about Hamas? Hamas massacred Israelis at a concert, they sexual violence and the whole thing. So how do you respond to that inevitable parallel? Right. And I think that human beings obviously <laughs> sympathize with any innocent people who get massacred and it is natural to sympathize with the innocent Israelis who were killed. But you have to understand that history did not begin on October 7th. I think a lot of Americans don't actually understand that Israel has occupied Gaza and the West Bank since 1967. So going on 60 years at this point, they have killed tens and tens of thousands of Palestinians during this time. The occupation's incredibly brutal. And as I like to say, getting mad about the terrorism by Hamas is understandable, but it is also like getting mad if you like have a bunch of shredded newspaper and you pour lighter fluid on it and then you throw on a match like like it's probably going to catch on fire. And if people say, you know, like you probably shouldn't douse that shredded newspaper with lighter fluid and then throw a match on it, that doesn't mean that they love fire. It means that they're just trying to explain a sort of natural cause and effect. There has never been this kind of occupation in history that has not bred extremely brutal responses. And Elise and I, in this article, compared this to the Nat Turner Rebellion, which I think was 1831, where Nat Turner was enslaved, is I think in Virginia, and became sort of the leader of this apocalyptic cult among other people who were enslaved. And eventually, they killed like 50 men, women, and children in extremely brutal ways. And so the question there is, you can see that and think that that's horrifying, and you can certainly condemn that. But there is a larger context, which it was hundreds of years of chattel slavery. So the same thing is true in this situation. I just wanted to say here also that this was really Israel's moment and, and the United States as well to look at the mistakes that were made in our own response to extremism, to a terrorist attack. And what I'm talking about, of course, 9-11, the United States had such a psychotic overreaction that killed upwards of a million people and more over 20 years. We brought back torture. We had a lawless offshore prison for men that were never charged as extremists. We have never apologized to them. We overthrew countries. We did regime change. Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 and we're still fighting there. And so I just wanted to say in thinking about this moment for Israel, of course, this was an extremist attack, but so too is the IDF acting in a terroristic genocidal campaign. And I would also say that the United States government is also an extremist government when it comes to perpetuating acts of terror across the world. An IDF stands for the Israeli Defense Forces. I'm glad you brought us to that, Elise, because you have done a very powerful series of articles in The Intercept about the injustices that the United States has perpetrated on people we held prisoners at Guantanamo. And it gets very little, if any, play in the media. Would you share with us some of what you have found? Sure. And I'll, and I'll tell you why Guantanamo isn't getting any play in the media anymore. It's because, you know, the United States propaganda won. Everyone in this country who 
is not obsessively well read, which that's very understandable. Not as many people are weird like me and, and read about victims of torture every single day. I mean, it's a really niche, you know, sort of thing that I became obsessed with. And what I found is that the general understanding of who these men were at Guantanamo and what we did after 9-11 was successful that we got the terrorists, you know, the would-be suicide bombers, the al-Qaeda extremists, you know, and put them all in Guantanamo and kept America safe and prevented this idea that there would be another attack. And instead, what we did was bred more terrorism with the drone strikes, with how we did a campaign of torture across seven different countries, the CIA black sites, the, the lack of reparations or apology for what we did. This has all created blowback in perpetuating extremism against states that are seen as terrorist states, like the United States, like Israel, for what we've done to the people in these poor countries, to the innocent civilians, and how we've ruined their lives and offended their way of life as well. Sorry, your question is what I've found in, in this. In particular, the people who have been released from Guantanamo without trial, with no sense, you know, conviction or anything like that, but sent to other countries. And I have to admit, I just sort of assumed they were doing okay. At least they were out of yeah. Guantanamo. But that's not what you found, yeah. is it? This has been ongoing for uh, since they've been released. There's these very quiet stories that are kind of sneaking under the radar about what has happened in particular situations. And some of the most egregious violations I've found started in Kazakhstan in 2014. Vice News actually did a great report, you know, as soon as these guys got released. But then there was no follow up. Eight years later, I check in on one of the sources who was a Guantanamo detainee who was put back in Kazakhstan because he's Yemeni. And, and, you know, the United States made a policy where the Yemenis and at that time the, the Afghans were not allowed to go back home. Their, their countries were too unstable. They were worried about re-engagement. They were worried about becoming more radicalized. They put in place safety precautions. And so one of the results of this is that about four men ended up in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is a former Soviet country that is very harsh on anyone who is perceived as a Islamic Muslim terrorist. Zero tolerance and really had very little respect for the United States State Department diplomatic agreement. So what I found was Sabri Qureshi, a Yemeni, has been living under the only funding that he gets is from the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross. The Red Crescent was their office in Kazakhstan. They pay for him to be there. But this man is essentially stateless. For eight years, he was not allowed to leave his apartment. His friends and anybody that he met were harassed and called and told, don't associate with this man. He has not been able to work. He cannot receive mail. He cannot receive money. He has no passport. He has no driver's license. He has no any form of identification. And he's been living as a third-class citizen on the outskirts of society in poverty. And he's has gratitude about it, you know? I mean, he's just, he's just a wonderful person who... Uh, would really like his life to change, but has no idea how to go up against these powerful governments and advocate for himself. He has no idea what to do. And you write about others in similar circumstances. And this is on us. This is, anyway, failure to clean up the messes we make. And you have each alluded to how we have gotten to this current situation in Gaza or how we got to 9-11. And you explain that we actually have created the situation through our past actions. And one of the things you point out is the USS New Jersey shelling Beirut in 1983 in support of Israel's invasion of Lebanon back then. And now here we are, everyone's alert concerned that there is going to be a new war in in Lebanon. And the observation, you do not have to be a brilliant person to predict that we are creating the next generation of violence, even while we're in the midst of this now. John, this is an example of what I'm talking about with how well-researched, even what you guys consider your lighter Christmas <laughs> articles are. Share with our listeners a little bit more of examples of this blowback that you, you guys chronicle. 
like one of the wisest things I've ever read in a book is a famous part of the Book of Laughter and Forgetting by Moen Kundra, mm-hmm. if I am saying his name correctly. You both may know this book yourself. You, you probably have heard this section of it where in the book it says the struggle of people against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And I remember reading that you know, long, long, long ago. And the book is about Eastern Europe and Czechoslovakia and the Soviet bloc. And I was like, oh, well, you know, maybe that's true in the totalitarian <laughs> communism of the East. But things are completely different in America. And of course, that's not true at all. Like the most powerful thing you can do if you are concerned about living in the gigantic American empire is just to remember the past because the past is being completely erased and forgotten constantly. It is being rewritten constantly on the fly by powerful institutions, by the New York Times, by all the pundits that you hear talking. You will never find out the past about the past and why it matters by listening to them. But the good news is that America itself is not like the Soviet Union. And so you can just go to the library and check out some books for free and learn everything you would ever want to know about the past. Like all of these things are they're fantastic books written about them. They are not censored. You just won't hear the people giving this kind of perspective on TV. Like that's the level of censorship that exists. But it's nothing like other countries in the past. And so we really should take advantage of that. And Elise and I definitely wanted to make the point that the attacks on 9-11 were to a large degree, we know, motivated by U.S. support for Israeli policy. Now, I would say it's important to explain what exactly that means, at least to me. I do not think that people like Osama bin Laden care about the victims of U.S. policy any more than George Bush cared about all the New Yorkers who died on 9-11. I don't think he cared about them at all any more than Netanyahu cares at all about the people who were killed on October 7th. I don't think our lives mean anything to any of these people. But they do note that violence against their, quote, side does make people angry and they can harness that anger for their own power. And certainly I think that's what Osama bin Laden was doing. Like he saw that people were understandably very, very angry about the Israeli occupation of Gaza and the West Bank. And especially like at this time, there was Sharon visiting the Temple Mount, other things going on, lots of people being killed. And so he saw this. Actually, bin Laden talked about the bombing of Beirut. Uh, A lot of Shia Muslims were killed in that, which is one reason you can tell that these are not people he generally cares about very much. (laughs) They're not Sunni Muslims. But in any case, that's what motivated a lot of the al-Qaeda attacks on 9-11. So we think that's important for people to know for sure. And that's something that barely made it into the 9-11 Commission report. A lot of people had to fight and fight and fight to get any reference to that made there. But it was done. And then the commissioners later wrote a book where they explained how difficult it was to even have this glancing reference to it. And I just want to say, too, I mean, the, the media on all of what we're talking about here has done an incredible job with the men who are victims of the war on terror. I think that there is a mass sort of delusion that every single one of the 779 men that were at Guantanamo were very dangerous people that would take your life without a second thought and kill your family, that they just wanted all people in the West dead. And what I found was that very, very few men at Guantanamo, the ones that remain there today, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed included, who may have been the only ones to actually commit war crimes against the United States and be able to be prosecuted under a a reasonable justice, legitimate process, instead of just being tortured and thrown in a cage and then released. There's a lack of understanding that a lot of these men were there by accident, hundreds of them. And so that's why when I tell people about this reporting and how this guy ended up in, in Kazakhstan and his life is so terrible. And, you know, Ravel Mingazov in, in Russia and how we sent him to the United Arab Emirates and he's been rotting in a solitary confinement cell for seven years instead of being allowed to participate in Emirati society. They look at me like I'm crazy, like, what, like who cares? These are terrorists. That's when I realized the historical amnesia has just been allowed to win. I mean, no one knows anything. And that's why, you know, I'm going to keep doing this. And I think that people need to investigate their own automatic assumptions about national security and foreign policy and really question the authority that's telling you who lives and who needs to be assassinated and bombed and why innocent children have the right to be killed. You just heard 
the voice of Elise Swain. She's the photo editor and journalist at The Intercept. And also joining us is John Schwartz, who is also a journalist with The Intercept. I just want to share my initial feelings as I was watching the repetition over and over and over again on 9-11 of the airplanes going into the Twin Towers and hearing the death toll, I had the feeling of, okay, finally, Americans are going to experience mass murder and unjustified, quote-unquote, collateral damage and it will open our hearts and we'll have a better understanding of why it's not okay for us to do this around the world. And this is one of the reasons <laughs> I'm considered very naive, because I do have feelings like that. And of course, that's not how it turned out. As you mentioned, Elise, this is so easily manipulated by political leaders to take that pain and turn it into rage. And then rational thinking goes out the window with that. I want to return to your piece in 2019, Christmas piece, talking about drones, because drones have really left the headlines But they certainly have not left the world, and our use of drones has increased, maybe it's not appropriate to say exponentially, but a great deal. And this is when human beings are more or less still in control. But with the acceleration of artificial intelligence, the prospects of this become truly alarming. Why don't you synopsize the proliferation from the early use by the George W. Bush administration of drones through the Obama administration, and then the acceleration under the Trump administration, and who knows with the Biden administration, because you wrote this in 2019. So share with our listeners a reminder of this. So look, the rise of the drone wars was sold to the American public as a surgical way to take out the head of the snake, the leader of these terrorist organizations in a way that would not kill civilians by uh, indiscriminate bombing in residential areas like we're seeing in Gaza. It started under the Bush administration. There were there were a few drone strikes there. They missed Osama bin Laden. There were many attempts to take out these people. But really, once Obama came in, he sold this idea of this more precise, careful way of, of doing war across a broad swath of, of land targeting people that did not have a military. This is insurgent kind of warfare, right? Where you've got groups of people that know the land that are very hard to, to fight against. You don't want ground troops in there because they will not win. And so what we started doing was really escalating the idea of why drone strikes would work so much better. And Obama really sold this to the country. I mean, it was a, it was a popular policy, honestly. It was, it was popular because people didn't understand that the drone technology, the visuals, the way that we were identifying, targeting human beings, it wasn't enough. They thought that it was more advanced than it was. And, and what we found out with reporting years and years later was that we were tracking people based on patterns, you know, on their cell phones, targeting the wrong people. Countless innocent civilian families died. And then when people would run in to help rescue them, they would kill the rest of the family that ran in with a double tap drone strike. And yet people, we said, well, this is just one mistake and and the policy is really working. I mean, that to me is completely indefensible. And so what it did was for years and years and years, kill the wrong people over and over and over again. And how do you surrender to a drone? You know, there, there was no way for these people to not just get, they were powerless, completely powerless to this, to this policy. And we saw with the Biden administration, the Trump administration actually scaled it back in certain countries, but still, still had some absolutely horrific blunders. So too, that just happened in the Biden administration with the drone strike in Afghanistan, in Kabul, where the, where the family of 10 innocent family members were, were killed. And that one had maybe more reporting and publicity than, than any other drone strike accident that I had seen. It's really a grotesque policy that if you really think about it, you should not have any 
question on where you would stand on this unless you've been so programmed to think that everyone who was targeted by these drone strikes were subhuman terrorists who did not deserve to live. And and so, too, their children did not either, because those kids would just grow up to be a terrorist just like their father. So why don't we just kill them now? That was really the way of thinking that went through from Bush to Obama to Trump, indiscriminate bombing across seven different countries. It was a global war, and it's now spreading into Africa as well, into this now, into this Biden administration. John, do you have anything you wanted to add to that? I do have stuff that I want to add to that. I think that it's important for Americans to try to imagine the reality of living underneath these circling drones, because even if the drones always solely killed the quote unquote right people, which obviously they do not, there is a kind of psychological terror that is very difficult to get your mind around, again, if you're American, of the idea that there is death hovering above you 24 hours a day and that you could die at any moment and you will have no warning about this. Like you won't even hear the missile coming towards you. You will just suddenly blink out of existence. And so that is number one. I think Americans should try to consider what it would be like to live under those conditions themselves. I think also that this kind of power, this kind of technological might, where we can kill people without making any of our military personnel vulnerable, leads to a very standard arrogance of power, which is terrifying to witness. You may know that Barack Obama supposedly you know, told people at the White House about approving all the various people that we were going to kill with drones so that, he, you know, he said, like, well, it turns out I'm really good at killing people. Like this was his little quip that he made to his buddies. You may also know that at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, Barack Obama, who, who rose to become president because he had exceptional emotional intelligence, talked about how the Jonas Brothers mm-hmm. – were there. This, I think, I think it was 2011, maybe. And mm. talked about how his daughters were big fans of the Jonas Brothers. And this is, but boys, don't get any ideas. Two words for you. Predator drones. And all of these well-fed, cosseted members of the D.C. aristocracy, like all chortled about how funny that is. At a moment when Barack Obama was literally killing other human beings <laughs> with predator drones, like how how hilarious that he's making a joke about the Jonas Brothers and predator drones. So it's very dangerous, obviously, for the people who are going to be the victims of our drones. But it is also extremely dangerous for American society, because, as I say, this kind of power necessarily breeds just absolutely incredible, like just arrogance and ignorance. And one one of the things that people have never noticed, but is very significant to me, especially living in New York, is that at that moment when Barack Obama was making his hilarious Jonas Brothers predator drone joke, there was a guy, I think from Pakistan, who wanted to conduct a like mass bombing in Times Square. And it just turned out that people noticed that his truck or whatever the vehicle was that he had, that there was something wrong with it and that it was found before it exploded. But he was trying to kill dozens, if not hundreds of people in Times Square at that exact moment. Like it was right then that day that Barack Obama was making his hilarious joke about drones. And so as an American, even if you don't care about people in other countries, you should understand that this is going to come home to you. And you should at least care about that. It doesn't mean that you should only care about yourself, but you should at least care about yourself a little bit and pay attention to this kind of stuff. And of course, under the Obama administration, U.S. citizens were killed with predator drones. Uh, Sheikh yes. Al-Alawi, where was that, in Yemen, I think? And- An- Anwar Al-Alawi was killed in 2011 in Yemen. And his son, Abdul Rahman Al-Alawi, was also killed. Um, in, in a separate in as well. drone strike. Yes. And the American people were sold the concept that we have smart bombs. Our bombs don't kill innocent people. And many people fell for that. And the same with the drones. You go into the statistics of how many non-combatants have been killed by drones. We won't go into that. There will be links to all of your articles on the website posting of this interview. In the current era, 
Israel is claiming the ability to do precision bombings and that they're doing everything they can to prevent civilian casualties. But it's quite amazing how many journalists, never mind the children and the women and the elderly who are dying, because they're at this point tens of thousands, but the number of journalists that have been killed every day since October 7th is truly astounding. And it's hard to think otherwise than that they are being targeted. I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. I do. I mean, Israel is lying. They're lying. This is indiscriminate bombing. I mean, they have completely destroyed over 52,000 houses, 100 mosques, 126 government buildings, all of the housing units are gone. Almost 300 schools and universities are gone. All of the hospitals were specifically targeted, which was a war crime. The Washington Post came out and, and said that with conviction that Hamas did not have a control center under the Al-Shifa hospital, which Israel had lied about over and over and over again and used that line of propaganda to bomb the biggest hospital in, in Gaza. And so with Respect to the journalists that are dead, I mean, if, if this was happening in any other country, over 110 journalists have been killed at this point. And I, I just think that the lack of condemnation, you know, the, the lack of global upset. Look at what U.S. media did after the, after the you know, dismembering and brutal killing of Jamal Khashoggi. It was front page. It was over and over again reported on. It just had so much more. Where are the sanctions? Who is being, you know, diplomatically punished? You know, what, what is, why is the Biden administration not able to say something publicly at this point about the killing of journalists, about the specific targeting of journalists? Shireen Abu Akleh, you know, we, we found out was killed by a sniper from the IDF, even though the entire three-team clearly marked press crew was specifically targeted. We know that. We know that Israel has no problem with killing journalists and the lack of condemnation and just the blanket allyship that we have from the Biden administration at this point with this country is unspeakable. I mean, I, I just don't understand it. One of the likely candidates for president this year has made no secret of his disdain for journalists and has even called for their execution at times. So I think that he wishes he had such power. There was one of the spokespeople for the Israeli government recently on Twitter attacked The Intercept. And I forget exactly what it was that they said. But my <laughs> feeling about that was I disagree with his criticisms of The Intercept, but I greatly preferred that to Israel's traditional method of dealing with journalists. It's incredibly sobering, I think, for anybody who does stuff like this to see what is happening in Gaza. There's no question that journalists are being specifically targeted. Like, they're, they're, <laughs> like either, either they're being specifically targeted or Israel is just unbelievably unlucky. It's horrifying. And as Elise says, like in, in any other situation, there would be an enormous worldwide outcry like this. This has never happened. There's never been a conflict, as far as I'm aware, in which this many journalists have been killed. Samar Abu Dhaka had his camera in his hand. He was wearing his helmet and his vest. Like Shirin Abu Akleh and so many others, he was easily identified as a member of the press. They can call the killing indiscriminate. But this isn't exactly true. When they're specifically targeting certain people in order to silence the news, they're killing off the journalists of Gaza day after day after day after day, hoping they can hide their crimes this way. Ola Atala was slain last week, along with nine members of her family. They were taking shelter in someone else's home after fleeing Gaza City. Ayat Kadura died alongside an unknown number thus far. Her only dream now was to be killed in one piece so they would know who we are. They're killing off the journalists of Gaza day after day after day after day. Hide their crimes this way. 
Mohammed Abu Haddad with Palestine TV, dead with his family of 11. Mostawa El Sawaf was killed in another, along with his wife and two sons. Sari Mansour was killed in an airstrike on a refugee camp. Muhammad Abu Hasira, along with 42 relations, slaughtered with another familicidal stamp. They're killing off the journalists of Gaza. Day after day after day after day. Hoping they can hide their crimes this way. They hope that if they kill the messengers, they can stop the message getting out. They can smash all of the cameras Silence everyone trying to shout Out to the world that might listen And see the horrors happening beneath the Palestinian skies The slaughter that for now we can Still see with our eyes They're killing off the journalists of Gaza Day after day after day after day their crimes this way. I want to move on now to, John, your article from November 3rd of 2023, The Gaza Protests Can Save Lives, Maybe Even Your Own. I loved your image. I'm going to quote you. In reality, committing violence is like kicking a football covered in razors into history, where it lunges around, bouncing this way and that, slicing open random people across the world in a trajectory so complex that no human being can predict it. This is frightening to think about, especially because there are thousands of these footballs carooming around the globe at any one time, occasionally smashing into each other and each then spiraling off in even more erratic directions. Okay, that's you referring to violence. But then you also say you can't tell where resisting things like that will lead. Would you expand on that, please? Yeah, well, I would say there are those two sides, which violence, as I talked about there, like has incredibly unpredictable effects. And I I tell a little story here about how the U.S. shot down an Iranian civilian airliner in 1988. And then that somehow, through, through a bizarre series of events, led to the death of my high school lab partner in biology. And like, like that's what I meant about how they, like who who could have predicted that? Who could have known that Sam was going to die because the USS Vincennes shot down? I think it was Iranian Flight Six Five Five. And people can read this story and they can, they can see the strange causal series of events that led to Sam dying. So that's that's the side of violence where no one knows, no one knows when ultra violence is committed, what it is going to lead to. But it is also true that no one knows what resistance to violence is going to lead to, but it is going to lead to good things, even if it's not directly the things that you want it to lead to. So for instance, one huge example is that people were heartbroken that all of the protests against the invasion of Iraq in 2002 and 2003 could not stop that war. I don't think anything could have stopped that war at that point. But those protests almost certainly did stop more wars because people have forgotten this now. But Iraq was supposed to be just the opening salvo in a whole series of wars against the Mideast, uh, particularly an invasion of Iran. And so you can participate in resistance to violence by your side and think, well, this is all pointless and we weren't able to stop what we were trying to stop. And that is one way of looking at it, but I think it is incorrect. It betrays a sort of lack of imagination about how the world works. And so no resistance to this kind of ultraviolence is ever wasted. It's just you're never going to know. You're never going to know whose life you saved. And sometimes that life, you know, may be yours. That is absolutely possible. I think one story I told in that article, too, was about how there were Muslims in the United Kingdom who talked about how they were so bereft, so angry about the invasion of, of Iraq that was coming that they were considering committing terrorism themselves. 
But when they saw that there were many, many, many people uh, in the U.S. and in Europe who opposed the invasion, they realized this was not a uniform sentiment, that that persuaded them not to engage in violence. So you just never know. You never know with violence and you never know with nonviolence. One of the themes of this interview is who controls information and who controls truth, etc. And the recent Elise Stefanik moves to remove college presidents, university presidents, and her crowing at the success of having done that. And then that brings up freedom of speech in the United States and who interprets that? I wonder if you have thoughts on this, because it's a big deal in our country now. Whichever of you want to take that. Yes, I have a lot of thoughts on freedom of speech, and I'm going to speak and speak and speak and speak and speak of it. <laughs> I think one of the things that motivates us, uh, motivates both Elise and myself, motivates people at The Intercept, is that information truly does matter. And there's a reason why the people at the top of all societies try to control information. And there's a reason why the people at the top of America try to control information. And the good news is that even with all of the problems that we have, the Internet has made it possible to communicate with large numbers of people in a way that, that never existed in the past. And I'm not going to say that it's not great now, but it is a million times better than it was pre-internet. And I think that we should take that seriously and we should try to harness the good parts of the internet, which are real, even though the bad parts are also very, very real and bad. So freedom of speech matters tremendously. Freedom of speech is connected to sort of material structures in a way that people may not appreciate that like it's good it's good that the u.s government doesn't really crack down on speech throw people in jail the way that has happened historically in many other countries it's not that meaningful without material structures that allow people to talk to large numbers of others you can have complete freedom of speech but you can have like theoretically a free market but people who talk about a free market of ideas don't seem to appreciate and understand that there is no such thing as a free market. Every market is controlled by the most powerful participants in it. So yes, the idea of free speech, a free market in speech is important, but it is not enough. Like we need structures that can gather information together and tell other people about it. And we'd like to think that The Intercept is, is one of those structures and would very much appreciate material support for The Intercept if anyone is so inclined. But we need much, much more than that. And I have a bunch of ideas about how we could possibly make that happen. Other people have ideas too. But that is something to take very seriously, both the importance of freedom of speech and also the barriers that exist to it. Well, as long as we're giving pitches, let's uh, also financially support community radio. We always need the help, folks. Well, we're winding down, and I really don't want to leave on such dire notes. John, you wrote in early December a piece bouncing off Jeff Cohen's piece, My Holiday Wish John Stewart Runs for President. At first I thought, oh, that's kind of a funny idea, but the more I thought about it, the more sense it makes. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah. You know, actually, first of all, I, I think that Elise and I also strongly endorse people giving money to community radio. Like that is one of the greatest institutions in America. And it kind of flies under the radar. And we yeah. should make much more use of it. And everybody should send money to you guys and, and other stations. But John Stewart, like, I don't care that much about John Stewart specifically, although I do think he is a very talented comedian. But I think that progressives should take seriously the fact that just Americans love celebrities and maybe we wish the world were otherwise. But that's just a fact. Americans love famous people. So let's let's try to work with that and not against it. Conservatives understand that. That's how Ronald Reagan became president. That's how Donald Trump became president. So take that seriously and then take seriously the fact that being funny is a huge political skill. So you can find a famous person, somebody who's already super duper famous and also is competent at being funny. Mm. Let's try to make that person president because it actually could happen. Share things that we weren't able to cover in this interview that you would have liked us to. Elise, let's begin with you. 
I do try to remain optimistic that history won't continue to repeat over and over and over again and will continue making the same mistakes again. But it, it takes time. We all expect to see change so immediately in our lifetime. We're also used to uh, immediate feedback with social media and the internet. And you can t- talk to somebody across the world in two seconds. I think that this level of violence feels so barbaric. And uh, I think we do need to think about the language that we continue to use and perpetuate against Muslims. I think terrorist has become a blanket word that actually serves more to dehumanize, you know, and make us think of people as less than human. And so I do like to try to bring the word terrorism back to the acts that are being committed by empire state nations by saying the United States is absolutely acting as a terroristic force in the world. And, and they have been since the invention of the CIA and as far as we go back, right? Martin Luther King was talking about the same issues. And I think that we really are moving at a glacial pace here with understanding that the more you bomb and kill the wrong people and act with hatred and violent response, I think we need to kind of look at the fact that we're losing. Uh, We spent $4 trillion in 20 years to replace the Taliban with the Taliban. It's just not worth the cost. I think that the United States, with regards to Guantanamo, would really do something amazing if they would recognize publicly that it was a mistake, if they would apologize, if they would exonerate the men that are now being released after being held in violation of international law with no charges. I think we owe it to the men that are victims of torture of the United States to change and have a public-facing program of honest foreign policy and really look at why our national security is failing and why we're inviting so many more attacks on our own homeland. If it can happen for the first time in Israel, we're just going to see more of it. And I do not think that we've learned the lessons of what happens when you retaliate and you expect killing the sons and killing their fathers as the same disgusting sort of unethical policy to not have lasting generational revenge and blowback that's that it's just going to keep us bombing each other forever. Well, thank you, Elise Swain. And John Schwartz, your thoughts? As we wrap this up, I have something which I like to call the gossip theory of journalism. And it goes like this. Everybody has had the experience of you agree to meet a friend of yours for dinner. You both arrive at the restaurant and they sit you down at your table and And while you're waiting for your other friends to arrive, you overhear people at the table next to yours. And they are gossiping about all of their friends who just got together with who and and like like who broke up and who got a new job and all of this. And it is the most unbelievably boring stuff you have ever heard. Who are these people who care so much about this minutia that is totally meaningless? Like, why aren't they talking about more significant things? And then your additional friends arrive and you all start gossiping about like all of your friends. And it is the most fascinating thing you have ever heard. And I think that's a very, very basic aspect of how human beings think, which is that gossip and information, when you know the context, is incredibly interesting. And when you don't know the context and it's all just new and you don't know uh, Jim and, and how Jim and Mary just got engaged, it's meaningless. And I think that's how politics, like talking about politics works in the United States. Like we're so depoliticized. People have so few opportunities to learn about how the world really works that politics all of our wars, everything that the United States does as an empire is in the category of gossip about people we don't know. So it's impenetrable for most people. It's boring. There's no way for them to pay attention to it because they don't know the context. And I think the job of journalistic institutions, of any kind of education, but universities, anywhere else, should be trying to move politics foreign policy, everything like that, for regular people into the category of gossip about people that they do know. And I sort of conceive of what we do at The Intercept as trying to do that. And it's a lot of work. There's a lot of context for people to understand, for them to actually be able to understand these subjects and find them interesting. But once you do know that context, and for me personally, like the more I learn about the world, the more interesting the world is. That's my gossip theory about journalism. I think it is something that actually can work. We just have to take it seriously and try to execute. I want to thank both of you, Elise Swain and John Schwartz, for the work you do at The Intercept and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having us. We love, love, love talking about these subjects because they are so important. (laughs) Like they really are about life and death for everybody on earth. 
You have just heard a conversation with John Schwartz and Elise Swain, two journalists who write for The Intercept. Interspersed throughout this has been the music of David Rovix, and he has generously allowed us to post it in the archived edition. The opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of this station's staff, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs and find links to articles, etc. pertinent to them at our website forthright.media After so many decades of patronage with the world's greatest empire After so many potential agreements were rejected by opening fire After crushing so many uprisings Now they're making their ultimate bid Pursuing their final solution Just like the Nazis did They forced refugees into ghettos Then set the ghettos aflame Murdering writers and poets And so no one remembers their names Killing their entire families The grandparents, women and kids The uncles and cousins and babies Just like the Nazis did They're bombing all means of sustaining Human life at all See the few shelters remaining Watch as the tower blocks fall They're bombing museums and libraries In order to get rid of any memory Of the people who lived here Just like the Nazis did They're saying these people are animals They should all end up dead They're sending soldiers into schools And shooting children in the head The rhetoric is identical And with Gaza off the grid They've already said what happens next Just like the Nazis did Words of war for domestic consumption And lies for all the rest To try to distract our attention Among their enablers in the West Because Israel needs their imports To keep those pallets on the skids They need fuel, they need missiles Just like the Nazis did They're using food as a weapon They're using water that way too They're trying to kill everyone Or make them flee, it's true As the pundits talk of after the war Like with the fall of Madrid The victors are preparing for more Just like the Nazis did But it's after the conquest's complete If history is any guide When the occupying army is positioned to decide When disease and famine kills whoever may have hid Behind the ghetto walls Just like the Nazis did All around the world People are trying to tell There's a genocide unfolding Ringing alarm bells But with such a powerful access And so many lucrative bids They know who wants their money Just like the Nazis did After so many decades of patronage By the world's greatest empire After so many potential agreements Were rejected by opening fire After crushing so many uprisings Now they're making their ultimate bid Pursuing their final solution Just like the Nazis did Just like the Nazis did Just like the Nazis did You can paint it as a war of good and evil You can pretend that your cause is just You can try to say you have the moral army And the other is just driven by bloodlust 
You can say you're on the side of Western values And the others represent barbarity You can say your enemies want chaos While you stand up for prosperity You can keep on telling lies from here to kingdom come But all that anybody wants is land and freedom the wrong religion You can say that they just want to hate You can drop bombs upon their cities You can say your God is great You can speak of punishment and lessons And how you must eliminate All the terrorists that you had to slaughter In the course of your affairs of state on telling lies from here to kingdom come but all that anybody wants is land and freedom you can claim that you represent the future and the other represents the times of old you can talk about how liberated your people are not like their feudal patriarchal mold You can talk about your love of life and liberty You can paint a death mask on your foe You can say what you like about your enemy But you can't change what everybody knows You can keep on telling lies from here to kingdom come But all that anybody wants is land and freedom Thank you.